three things not to teach your kids. Now, from that title, you might think this is the worst Sunday to bring your kids on Sunday morning, but actually it's the best, and you'll see why here in just a moment, okay? Uh, in the book of Ephesians, we see over and over that the letter that Paul was writing to them is something called a polemic. In other words, he had gotten word that there was a problem, disunity within that church. He's in prison in Rome. Uh, not only was that true there in Ephesus, okay, uh, but he had also heard that it was true in another one of his churches, and then he also had a guy with him who has been a runaway slave, and he needed to send him back to another city. So he sends all these letters uh, back to former churches, former places where he had done ministry. And this one in particular, he had heard that there were a lot of racial tensions within the church, and there was a lot of disunity. And anytime there is tension in a relationship, in a church, in a workplace, there are certain things that usually eventuate from that if we allow the flesh to take over. And the flesh had taken over in First Baptist Ephesus, okay? And so he's writing them, guys, we got to get along. This is destroying our witness to the community at large. And he said, Here, here's what he was saying. First thing he's going to address when he says, God deal with the problem of racism, just philosophically, we're all created in the image of God, every single one of us. There's only one race, and that's the human race. And uh, now that Christ has reconciled us, we need to get along. And then he follows with what I'm going to talk about today, three things that you don't need to teach your children, three ways that the devil empowers our flesh, it's already there, it's already in our sinful nation, our sinful nature, three ways that the devil empowers our flesh to exhibit our sinful nature. And we don't have to do these things, teach our kids these things, because they already come by them naturally. You'll see what I'm saying just in a moment. Three things that you never have to teach a kid because they already know how to do them. And the thing is, is as children grow up, they become adults, and then they are just big fleshly controlled children. And we see these problems really in every church. And while we are experiencing a great amount of unity right here, there's always the temptation to allow the flesh to take, take over. So um, we'll pick up here. This is the verse we left off on last week. Paul encourages the people at Ephesus to put on the new self. In other words, you need to put on a new set of clothes. Created after the likeness of God. Key phrase here, you're going to hear me say over and over again today. I say it all the time. That we were created to live our lives like the image of God. We were created to be in the likeness of God. So we will thrive when we were acting like God acts like when we are developing the characteristics that God has, when our families are emulating the Trinity, when we are loving each other the way the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit love each other, we will thrive when that happens. But when we don't operate that way, then we'll move the other directions. We won't thrive, okay? And so here are the two major ways that he says that we need to thrive, is that we're pursuing God's characteristics of righteousness and holiness, Righteousness is pursuing that which is good, okay, and holiness is setting ourselves apart from that which is negative, okay? And so there's always that focus. It's like I want to be driving after the righteous things of God, and at the same time I want to be removing myself, shunning the things that do not reflect the righteousness of God. And the first thing that he says you do not need to teach your kids to do is lie, okay? Okay? 
How many of you ever sat down and taught your kids? Now, let me tell you how to tell a lie. Any of you ever done that? And, and they're like, well, people say, well, it's our environment that, that's bad that teaches kids how to lie. Before they ever go to their first day of anything with kids, unless they're all sharing it in the baby nursery back there, unless we're teaching kids in the baby nursery. Now, this is how you lie to your parents. You don't have to do it. Why? Because what is true of your children, what it was true of you, and what your parents said was true of you, and what their parents said was true of them, is why did you just lie to me? Where are you learning that? I'm telling you where they learned it from. They learned it from the devil. It's in their flesh. All of us have a natural propensity to tell lies. And if, you fight, if you're fighting that right now, that you have a natural propensity to tell lies, guess what? You're lying to yourself. We all battle it. And so I want you to see the characteristics of God. We're going to do this over and over. What's the righteous aspect of God that we want to emulate? And then what do we want to separate ourselves from? We want to chase after truth. We want to be holy in that. We avoid untruths. Here's the characteristic of God that's behind that. We have a hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies... This is true of him. He never lies. What is true of God? Well, here it is. Uh, we want to emulate that by speaking the truth in love. That's it. That's the opposite of lying. Is because we love the people around us, you will tell them the truth. And I'm going to get into it just a moment. I want to get ahead of myself. But sometimes as adults, kids haven't figured this out yet. Sometimes as adults, we think because, as I, because I'm in love with this person, I'm going to tell them a lie. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands if you, if you ever do that, because husbands do it all the time. I don't know about women, but I just know men, when we get together, we talk about how there have been times that we lie to our wives just to give peace in the house. And we justify it thinking we're doing our wives a favor, when deep down, we know better. We are too. This is what God, if you want unity in your church, if you want unity in your school, if you want unity in your relationships, if you want unity in your family, this is what you have to do. You have to pursue the righteous characteristic of God that is speaking the truth to one another. Tell the truth. Why do we do this? Again, because Jesus is, he says, I am the truth. This is who he is. He cannot tell a lie. God is all-powerful, but he cannot tell a lie. His character doesn't allow him to fall into that. Okay, so this is what Paul says. If we're going to move forward, therefore, because of these characteristics of God, because you want unity in the church, having put away falsehood. Now, the word here for falsehood is the Greek word pseudos. Have you ever heard something called like, a, they have something called pseudepigraphy, which means someone writing something, posing as someone else. You're trying to present something as truth, but really you're faking it. You're trying to look like they would like. It means put away being a faker. Uh, you may have heard the expression before, something is a pseudo blank. That means it looks a little bit like something, but it's not really. Once in a while, you know, we'll say of someone we know, that person is a pseudo-athlete. That means they like to play sports, but they're not really good at it. You know, 
You follow what I'm saying? They are a pseudo, uh, uh, I'm not even going to say other things because I don't want to offend people, okay? <laughs> but, but this is what I would say to you. When he says pseudos here, it does mean a lie, but it, what it's meaning is a lie that has a lot of the truth in it. It's deceptive. It might even be 99% true. But if something is 99% true, that means it's a pseudo-truth. And Paul says something that's 99% true is a falsehood. It's ultimately not reflecting the character of God. So let's not like lie to one another. Let's not deceive one another. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Here's why. We are all members of one another. In other words, you wouldn't want to lie to yourself. Don't do that. It, it's not helping you out. If you want relationships with others, because we're members of one another, because we want to have a relationship with one another, don't lie to one another. So I want to say this to you. Whether it's a friendship, church relationship, marriage, relative, co-worker, all relationships are built on trust. I'm going to say that again. All relationships are built on trust. Why would I listen to you or why would you listen to me if whatever I'm saying you don't believe is true? Why even have a conversation with someone else if what they're going to say to you is not true? If I don't believe you. The basis for any relationship is trust. And once it's shot... It's hard to earn back. And so as we move forward to avoid the sin of lying, I, I want to get to the root of something so that we can understand this about ourselves because sometimes we would just immediately resort to telling a lie and we don't even realize we, why we just did it or even that we just did it. And here are the two root causes of it as far as I can see in the Scripture. The first is this. It's fear. The reason that we don't tell the truth and the reason that we lie is because we're afraid, first of all, of letting someone else see who we really are. We are afraid that this person or this group around us will see who we really are and if they know what I've done, they won't like me or they're going to treat me poorly. That's number one. Number two is this, it's pride is I want this person to think that I'm better than what I really am. And I can't admit I make a mistake because if I do admit I make a mistake, it's not that I'm afraid that they will be mad at me. It's just that I want them to like me. My pride is greater than my fear. It's usually one of the two things. I'm afraid they're going to be mad at me if, I'm actually, if I actually open up and tell them the truth of what I've done. Or the other is, I want them to think something's not true of me because they will like me more. And, and here's what I, I want to I say this to you. I'm going to back it up a little more. At this root of fear and pride is this overall understanding of ourselves that we're not good enough. That God's not enough for us. And so what we do out of fear and pride, we pseudos. 
we deceive, we twist it. We give others a picture of ourselves that's not quite the truth. So in order to do that, I'm going to take a little sidebar here. I, I, wanna, I want you to understand this. When we talk about lying and then the other two things you never want to teach your kids, I'm going to talk about something really important right now. And it's this whole idea of this is what we do when we lie. And then the other things, I'm also going to say this too. I'm going to talk about the righteousness of God. There's three things I'm going to hit this morning. Watch. The righteousness of God, this is what we have to pursue. Secondly, the holiness of God, I want to avoid that which is the opposite, which is the character of God. Okay? Separate ourselves from sin. But the third thing, in order to be successful at chasing after righteousness and shunning that which is not holy, I have to watch out these three things. Justification fallacies. Because almost every time that Steve Willis, I'm just saying this is true of me, every time that I am tempted to tell a lie, I look at it and I justify it, and not only that, and the other things I'm about to present to you that we don't have to teach our children, what we do is, as kids we do this, and then we teach kids you shouldn't do it, but then we turn into adults who do these three things, and we justify doing these three things. So when we justify sinning against God, follow me here, it's usually based on these three logical fallacies. Number one is this. I'm going to lie. This is what we say as adults. Kids haven't learned this skill yet, the justification skill. Adults are experts at it. I'm going to lie for the greater good. I'm going to tell my wife that she looks great in that dress for the greater good. Even though maybe she doesn't look good in that dress. Now, that maybe apply to someone else. It never applies to D. She looks good in every dress she's in. What did I just do? I just justified, right? I just justified myself. I'm not telling the truth. It's a pseudo-truth. You look good, but this aspect of that dress doesn't get it. Oh, this was a great meal. I enjoyed everything you prepared for me. That's a greater good justification fallacy. Anytime we say, I'm, I'm going to tell the boss that I was late because I got caught up in traffic, but really, I just got stopped at one red light out of ten. But at the same time, listen, that's true. I got caught up in traffic, but it's a pseudo-truth. Do you follow what I'm saying? It's not 100% true. Really, the reason that you're late is because you left home 20 minutes late. You just caught, caught by one day, oh, traffic was awful. You caught one light out of ten, and it was awful? But you give that pseudo-truth, why? Because you think it's for the greater good. It'll lead to an argument at work. I don't want them not to like it. It's fear-based, okay, or it's pride. You don't want to admit that you have a hard time getting ready on time. So it goes back to the greater good fallacy. Don't fall into that. I'm going to violate the character of God, but I'm going to justify it because overall I'll be doing still what God would want me to do, which is keeping peace. Number two is this. It's the deception of exception. The deception of exception. I see this all the time in parenting. I can say 99.9999 kids mess around if you leave them alone with their boyfriend or girlfriend uh, for any period of time. And every mama in here will say, thank God my kid is in the point oh 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 one percent Not true of my little Janie. It's not true of her. Y'all follow what I'm saying? It's the deception of exception. That's why stats in a sermon don't do a lot of good, because everybody out there thinks, 
I'm in the group that's not affected by whatever Steve just said. It's, we all fall to the deception of exception. And the deception of exception is this. I know that this is what the Bible teaches, and that is a general truth. But my situation, God's going to understand, is an exception to what the Bible says. My situation is so bad, I realize that's what Jesus taught. I realize that's what Paul says. I see that's in the Bible, but my situation is different. And I know that God will surely understand if I violate his holiness here, because ultimately I'm not violating his holiness. I'm not violating his righteousness, okay? Because my situation is unique. Therefore, I don't have to do what the Bible says to do. And then finally, that leads to the false God, little g God, little j Jesus, the false premise fallacy. What is that? If I would say to someone, you can't lie to this person because Jesus wouldn't want you lying, then they would say, well, the God that I worship, you've ever heard somebody say something to this, or have you said something like this? Well, the God that I worship, or the Jesus I understand, or the overall idea of the Bible is that I should be happy. And I know that this is what the Bible says I should or should not do, but the overarching uh, theme of the Bible is our individual happiness, and therefore I know my God, my Jesus... Jesus has revealed to me that for the greater good, that my situation is different. This false Jesus you're praying to, this wish God, like this, my Jesus, your, have you ever somebody said, well, that's your truth, but it's not my truth. It's all a part of these three justification fallacies. Do y'all follow me so far? So whatever you do, please help me when I try to communicate this to you, take away the day number one. God will never reveal something to you personally that is in conflict with what he has already revealed to you biblically. I'm going to say that again. God will never reveal something to you personally that is in conflict with what he has already revealed to you biblically. Don't fall to the three justification fallacies when it comes to lying because God will never say to you, I know that's what the Bible says, but your situation is different. I know that's what the Bible says, but overall, like, for the greater good, you need to not do what it says. I know that's what the Bible says, but really, it doesn't accurately represent, or how about this, won't you twist those words in there and find some philosopher who will tell you the Greek word doesn't mean what the Greek word means. And our pulpits are filled with people across these United States who go and read pseudo-Hebrew, pseudo-Greek, who will find one situation where a Greek word is used this way, one situation where a Hebrew word is this way, and then they will extrapolate from that one rare use of the word that it applies all over the Bible and completely misapply it, mistranslate it, even in some of the versions of the Bible that are out there today. So I want to say again, God will never reveal something to you personally that is in conflict with what he has already revealed to you biblically and so please remember this now 
At the start of the passage, he was saying, you were created to be in the image of Christ Jesus. And at the end of this paragraph, he says this, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. What is he saying over and over? What have we seen over and over in the book? We are to emulate the characteristics of God. If we just have a, getting to preaching now, you ready for this? If, If we just have a good idea of who God is, we will then be able to have a good idea of who we are. But this is where Oprah kills us. Watch this. We don't want to any longer be children immature in the faith, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about every wind of doctrine. That's teaching, philosophy, thinking about who God is. The pseudo-Jesus, this little G God, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. This is what Paul has warned them about. This is why, watch here, this main word here is doctrine. What he's saying is the sign of an immature person, the sign of an immature church, the sign of an immature men's ministry, the sign of an immature immature women's ministry, the sign of immature youth ministry, and I know just by the definition of youth, it probably is immature because they're still immature. That's what, that's what they call teenagers, right? They haven't matured yet. That's why we call them adolescents. But let me say this. When you've got a group of people that would just want to come together and talk about whatever their feelings are for today, but they don't want to talk about doctrine... If you ever come to a Bible study here and they're not talking about theology and doctrine, find another Bible study. Say, whatever Bible study I'm going to, they never talk about doctrine. I need to know that because that's not the path we want to follow. Because when all we do is come down here and talk about the things that we want to talk about that aren't related to the character of God, Everything that we need to know about ourselves relates back to everything we need to know about the character of God. Now I'm preaching. Some people, oh man, I just don't believe that the Bible's meant to be broken down and studied and analyzed. That's how you get to know who God is. You're not born with the innate nature of knowing who God is. You have to break down, you have to understand it in its context How many times have you heard me say over and over, let's understand the context of the past. Listen, I will spend often 20, 30 minutes breaking down the original context, how the people lived in the first century, just so you can understand the last 10 minutes of applications I do. But what a lot of people do is they want to go to a church where the pastor will just come in and go into straight three applications, point A, point B, point C, therapeutic D as I call it, just Tell me how to make my life work better, but we're not really caring. We're not really convicted about doing what I need to do because it emulates the character of Jesus Christ. Do you follow what I'm saying? Man, this is where we got to watch out. And the reason people watch, if you're counseling with a 35-year-old, 55-year-old, 75-year-old that's just like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going back and forth, whatever. I'm telling you what is at the root of their problem. It's not personal discipline. They have a fundamental misunderstanding of who God is and what their identity is in Christ and what God is calling them to be. They're afraid of what other people, their emotions are running havoc over them. And listen, I want want to say something moving to the next one. Listen, 
let me go to this. Watch this. Poor doctrine leads to poor choices. And clear doctrine leads to clear choices. Choices may not be easy, but they will be clear. And so sometimes Steve, people say to me, Steve, man, I don't know how you deal with all the problems you do down at the church. Listen, and I will tell them, most of the time it's not easy, but it's usually clear the decisions I have to make. Why is it usually clear? Because I study who God is and how Christ would do things. And watch this, watch this. Fundamentally, when people make mistakes and bad choices, fundamentally, it goes back to a misunderstanding. Christian people, fundamentally, it goes back to a misunderstanding of who God is and what he would expect. I'm going to say that again. Fundamentally, if your teenagers are making poor choices, fundamentally, it goes back to poor doctrine. Fundamentally, if you see people making clear choices, like they know exactly what they ought to do, and it lines up with the Bible, that goes back to clear doctrine. And that's what leads to being tossed and forward, back and forth in the waves, like never knowing what to do, constant insecurity, not knowing who God made them to be. It goes back to poor doctrine. If they study what the Word of God says, and they understand just how much Jesus loves them, they won't waller in their guilt from past sins because they know if Jesus, the creator of the universe, the perfect one, can forgive them of their own sins, then by, by goodness, everybody ought to be doing that as well, including themselves. Talking about a poor doctrine, when someone says to me, Steve, you know what, I know God has forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. You have no understanding of who Jesus is. Because if you're putting a higher standard on yourself than what Jesus is, you're elevating yourself to a more righteous position than what Christ himself holds. If the one who died for you on the cross, the one you put on the cross can die for whatever sins you've done on the past, and he's forgiven you of those, then why are you putting yourself on the cross all over again every day for it? And for that matter, why do you do it to other people? If Jesus can let it go what they've done, why can't you? And that goes back to poor doctrine leads to poor choices, which leads to number two. Don't teach your kids to throw temper tantrums. How many of you ever sat down with your two-year-old and said, when you don't like what's going on, I want you to flop down right where you are, clench your fist, and just go, Wah! Do you have to teach your kids that? Do you have to show them videos? Do they have to watch it in cartoons? No, you don't have to teach them that. Why? Because their flesh has already told them when they're angry about something, just pout about it. Just make everybody, if you're miserable, just make sure everybody else in the room is too. No eight-month-old has ever laid their room and just cried bloody murder and thought to themselves, I think maybe I should stop because my mom probably had a really bad day. None of them are altruistic. None of them are considering the, the things of others. And so what they do is when they get upset about something, it turns into anger. And when they get angry, now everybody's going to pay the price. It's like the line in the movie Tombstone. Guy's angry and he says, you tell him that I'm here and hell's coming with me, right? 
All of our one-year-olds know that. They don't know that line yet, but they live that line on a regular basis. This is why the Bible says, watch this. And this goes back to doctrine. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Now, I'm going to break down this verse here a little bit. First of all, what are we being commanded to do in this verse? A lot of people think it's the command in the Bible is don't ever be angry. But here's a command to what? Be angry. It's just saying when you're angry, don't sin. Listen, I'm, I'm going to say something. This goes back to the theology, doctrine. Anger is a good thing. God can often be angry. Jesus was angry. We'll look at it in a moment, but I want to separate this. First of all, being angry is not a sin. Sinning when you're angry is a sin. And then it says, part of the way that we sin when we're angry is we allow the sun to go down on our anger. In other words, we get angry and we stay angry. Do you follow what I'm saying? When you see injustice... Men, if you see somebody jump out of their car and start beating on your wife, you're not being like Jesus when you say, I'm going to control my anger right now and think about what led this man in his past to have a bad experience. Therefore, he's displaying his anger against my wife. I'm sure he probably had a bad daddy at some point in his life. A lot of times we think that's who Jesus is. If someone comes out and going after my wife, I need to be angry and I need to act out on that anger. Do you follow what I'm saying? That's a very godly anger at that time. It's just I need to do something about it. I need to deal with it instead of just pressing it down on the inside, repressing it day after day after day, which leads to the devil having an opportunity to cause division in my family, in my marriage, in my church, in my workplace, in my school. What does it mean to give a, an opportunity? Another word here is a foothold, some of your Bibles will say. What does that mean? Like, if my door is closed and i got my foot in front of the door, I don't care how strong you are, you're probably not coming through that door. My wife can keep me from coming through a door. She weighs half of what I do. She can shut a door, put her foot in front of it, and if I'm on the other side, I'm not coming through unless I just go full bore. But if she cracks that door and allows me to get a foot just inside the doorway, I will be in that room one second later. You follow what I'm saying? What's he saying here, man? Don't even crack open the door by repressing your anger and not dealing with it. It's not telling us as a couples, if you're having problems in your marriage, to just let the anger go away and ignore your feelings. What the verse here is saying by not allowing your, the sun to go down on your anger is when you're having feelings of anger, deal with it. Do you follow what I'm saying? Use your words. That's what Dee's would teach our kids all the time. She would see the frustrating build up with them, and she would call them down, and she would say, use your words. How are you feeling right now? And sometimes when I come home in the evening, she says to me, calm down, use your words. 
I don't want to use my words. She says, you seem really angry. I'm not really angry. Well, tell your voice because your voice sounds really angry. Deal with it. Use your words. It goes back to bad doctrine. Why? Because a lot of people have this image of Jesus. To a lot of people, when they say, well, the Jesus I know would just forget about it and ignore this problem and just let it go away. He would just sweep it under the rug. That's because I serve the happy little J Jesus. This is the Jesus that's all the time happy. Watch this. Jesus enters the synagogue. There was a man there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus, the Pharisees, the religious leaders did, to see whether or not he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Well, they're going to accuse him of violating the Sabbath. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Here's the thing. The Bible already gave them this answer. These were guys that had the Bible memorized. Are you all following me? They knew what the Bible said. That even on the Sabbath, if your animal is hurting on the Sabbath, you can do something to get them out of that pain. But yet they're here judging him. He knew they knew the answer. But here they are hoping that he'll heal this guy so they can accuse him of violating the Sabbath principle, even though they knew he wouldn't be violating the Sabbath principle if he helped the guy. Y'all, y'all tracking with the story? And so Jesus, while they're silent, he says, you know what? Hurt people hurt people. I'm sorry that you guys were hurt so early in your life. I'm sorry you're dealing with anger and bitterness. Let's talk about our feelings right now together. No. He looked around at them with anger. He's thinking like, what is wrong with you people? You got this guy, you planted him in here just hoping I'd heal him, but you wouldn't do anything to help this man on day? And Jesus, his anger led to grief. Like emotions, listen to me. God is a very emotional person. Jesus was an angry man many times. Do you follow what I'm saying? When I hire someone on staff, I want to know they've got an anger problem. Do you follow what I'm saying? Not that they can't control it, not that they can't think about it, not that it's causing problems in their marriage, but I want people who wake up angry. I want people who are angry about the fact that people are dying and going to hell every day. I want people on staff who are angry that families are splitting up. I want people who are angry that there are children in our own community that aren't getting a proper education. I want people, do y'all follow what I'm saying? I want people angry that there's racism that affects relationships. I want people, I want angry people to join this church. And some of you are thinking right now, well, then I'm in the right place. (laughs) Anger is a good thing. Why? Because it motivates you to stop the things that violate the holiness of God. And it motivates you to chase after righteousness and encourage it in other people's lives. Do you see what I'm saying? Jesus walks into the temple. Do you remember the story where they're ripping off the poor with the doves and the pigeons? Do you remember that? They're just violating the Passover principle, selling there in the temple, just ripping people off. 
And he walks in, he says, well, you know, this isn't that big a deal because I'm happy, Jesus. No, he gets a whip and he starts putting the whoop on all of them. There's another word I use there in this, that we use in the South, but I'm not going to say it this morning. Dee gets mad at me when I do, and then she has anger problems, okay? So he goes in, and he does anyway. He heals the guy and restores him. But I want you to see this about Jesus on the flip side. After they've crucified him, put him on the cross, what does he say? Father, forgive them. See, a healthy anger causes you to address injustice, but not always injustice against you. Usually we get angry about stuff that hurts us, and we don't get angry about the things that hurt others. We're passionate about the things that affect us and ours, but you see injustice against another group of people, and you're like, well, that's their problem, it's not mine. And Jesus was the opposite. So part of the way we resolve our anger is we look to forgive. And so this is why Paul writes, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. What's he saying here? When you're anger and you stay angry and you don't put it away, don't, don't hang on to that anger forever. Why? Because it leads to bitterness. It, what is wrath? Uncontrollable rage. It leads to clamor like everybody yelling at each other. Slander, you start doing pseudo-truth, talking about other people. You will word things about what others did or said in a way that will put them in the worst light. Why? Because you're angry at them. And then you're doing both the things Paul's talking about is you're lying and you're angry. And he says, put these away with you along with all malice. Now, what is this malice? If the root word is just bad, bad words. What, what's what he's saying here? The women of the leaders of the church, this is crucial, must be dignified, here it is, watch it, the key, not malicious talkers. In other words, what's it saying about women who are leaders in the church? In this way, it's maybe female deacons or deacons' wives, or, you know, I'm, it's not 100% sure what it's talking about here, but I know it's women who are leaders in the church. But what it's saying, if a woman's going to be in a leadership position in the church, and this would be true of men as well, but Paul's saying in particular about this group of people, what he's saying is they shouldn't be saying bad stuff about anybody. And let me tell you something that's true in the South and in the North and in the East and the West in these United States. A lot of times all people do is get together in little circles and they just talk bad about people. Well, she's acting this way. She does this. And they can talk for hours about other people and why they're no good. This is what, this is what Paul's saying, man, whatever you do, don't put a woman in leadership positions who talks to other women about other women in a negative way. And I want to encourage you, for all the men in our church, for all the women in our church, if you hear them talking negatively about others, and it's not for the purpose of keeping accountability or leadership or whatever, but I mean, it's just flat up, you're just talking bad, this person's not a part of the problem and they're not part of the solution, that's what the Bible calls gossip. That's malicious. It's mal, it means bad. Beware the justification fallacies. For the greater good, I'm going to hang on to my anger and I'm going to talk bad about others. Well, my situation's different. I deserve to be mad at this person and to stay mad at this person forever. 
Well, my God would not, let, would not want me to forget about that. My God would not want me to move on. It's the false premise. We fall to this all the time. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as what is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. This is what you want to run through the sieve. Imagine you've got a little sieve on your mouth, like it strains the spaghetti. You know, lets the water out, the spaghetti stays in. Listen to what I'm about to say. If what you're talking about isn't for someone else's good, shut your mouth. Is that how you say it in Tennessee? Shut your mouth. Quit talking bad about other people. If the person you're talking to isn't part of the problem and they're not part of the solution, shut your mouth. This is how you maintain unity in a church. In contrast, that's how we shun the unholy. This is the righteousness we're after, to be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, key here, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the key. There's a story that Jesus tells about a man who owed millions of dollars to the king. And he comes into the king, and the king says, you know what, I know you owe me $10 million, but I forgive you. And then he runs out of that room, and he goes to a man who owed him $1,000. He says, if you don't give me that $1,000, I'm going to file suit on you in a court of law, and I'm going to have you put in debtor's prison so you can pay my debt back to me. So the king hears word about how that guy acted, and he brings him back in, and he throws him into prison. And this is, I mean, when you listen to this story, you say, it's absurd. The guy just got forgiven millions of dollars, and he's going to hold some other guy up for a thousand? This is what goes back to good doctrine. Listen to what I'm saying. When you're holding a grudge against someone else year after year after year after year, and you refuse to forgive them and let that go and move on, you've got a bad understanding about just how much God has forgiven you. God has forgiven you of millions of sin. You tell me you can't let go of those one or two against this person over here to be kind-hearted. And then finally, I know the kids are here today, and there's a lot of things that I'm summarizing here. We don't want to tell our kids, teach them to take other kids' toys in the nursery. Lee, are you in here this morning? Lee Cocker, are you in this service? Do we ever have to tell other kids back there, let me teach you this word. I'm going to teach you a four-letter word, kid. It's called M-I-N-E, mine. You have to teach your kids that word? They learn it. This belongs to me. Taking something that belongs to somebody else or someone else going, nah. it may or may not be like all the stuff in the nursery belongs to everybody, but you just hear those two-year-olds in there, mine, mine, mine. And ultimately, to steal something from someone else. Now, when we talk about emotions and root calls, I'm going to take a little break. Little pause here. I'd like to do more with this this morning. I'm limited on time. There's a great book by somebody in our church, Chip Dodd, called The Voices of a Heart. And it talks about how looking at what are my emotions, where are they coming from, and how do I deal with them. And if you want to increase in your emotional intelligence, I encourage you to go read this book. A lot more I could do. We could do a month of Sundays just on this. Okay? But I encourage you. Voices of the Heart. How to deal with your emotions. Emotions being a good thing. Because God has emotions, okay? But going back to why do we steal? Why do we take things? Look at what he says. 
Let the thief no longer steal. Watch this. That's the negative. That's the holiness. Separate from the negative thing. But rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that, here's the purpose, so that he can have a nice house. Is that what your Bible says? Let the person without a job go get a good job so that they can drive a nice car. You ever notice that when kids graduate from college, what's the first thing they do? They get that degree and they go trade it in for a debtor's note on a car. Have you ever watched that? That's the American dream. 72 months, $500 a month. I am your slave for the next. I've been the slave of the college, now I'm going to be the slave to the car dealer. Why do we work hard? Why do we get those degrees? Why do we go to work every day? Here's why. It's not for selfish motivation. So that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Teach your kids these three things. I want to close with this. Just a recap. Number one, teach your kids to speak the truth. Two, to be zealous for God and others. We don't teach our kids not to be angry. We tell our kids how to deal with their anger and to use it for the sake of justice and righteousness. And then number three, we teach them to work hard and to be generous. I, um, I'm going to close with a little story with you this morning. I didn't know how I was going to close this sermon this week, but uh, it, it came to me last night in a form of bad news. Um, this is my Aunt Sandra. And just on Monday, my dad called me and said she has stage four pancreatic cancer. And I wrote her and said, hey, I'm going to try to get on the phone with you and talk with you later. And then they called me last night and said she passed away. One week. And there's my, uh, my other family, there's my cousin, that's her son. It's my dad's sister. And I, I was already thinking yesterday morning, I was visiting Titus and we were painting his uh, house and I was thinking, man, I'm, I'm going to uh, write Sandra a letter because I know I'll cry if I try to tell her what the way I feel about her before she goes. And um, I never got the chance to even write the letter. So I'd encourage all of you before I even get into this, man, when there are people in your life that you love, sometimes you don't know if you're going to have another week. And so don't spend your life lying to people or being angry with family members or just chasing after the things of the world. So uh, I want to read you the letter that I wrote that I pray that Sandra is listening to this morning. Dear Aunt Sandra, when I heard last Monday that you had stage four cancer, I decided to write you this letter, but yet here we are six days after the diagnosis and you were gone. Short of a tragic car accident, it doesn't feel like God could have, could have taken you away any more quickly. We are all in disbelief. As I prepared my sermon this week and I came to the verse where the Bible says to work hard so you can give to others, 
I was thinking of you. I remember when I was a sophomore in high school, and we drove to your house in Houston. I couldn't understand why a single mom in her 30s, early 40s, would be starting law school, but you did it. And I saw you work hard. And I saw that coal miner's daughter become the first person in our family to get a doctorate. And I didn't know why you were doing it. And then I saw you win your first cases, and then another and another. And I saw how the long hours took a toll on you. And I wondered why a woman in her 50s would keep working so hard. And then I graduated seminary and I moved back to West Virginia with a first baby on the way. Had my first time, full, first full-time ministry job, making $22,000 a year without any benefits. And you delivered to us our first washer and dryer. And I wondered, with all your nieces and nephews, why? Two years later, you overheard me say I was looking for a cheap vacation. <laughs> and I didn't know you had bought a huge cabin at the top of Snowshoe Mountain. And you were quick to offer to us what felt like the most luxurious mountain accommodations a couple could have. And then I started to understand why. Three years later, I needed a cabin for a college retreat. And once again, you offered your cabin, and the 40 of us absolutely overwhelmed your sewer system. It cost you thousands of dollars in repairs, and you wouldn't take our church's money to fix it. And I didn't understand why. Before the next 20 years, you hosted holiday event after holiday event, and you not only had a card for me every Christmas, but for my kids as well. And you painted his paintings every year. We never left your house without something. And over time, I understood why. Some people are nothing but consumers. They think they were put on this earth to take, but you knew you were put on this earth to give. And you did what you did, not only for me, but for countless other cousins and I'm sure hundreds of others that I'll never know. I really wanted to tell you this in person, but now I'll just say it. I knew you weren't just giving us things. Behind every card, hug, smile, and painting, you were giving us you. And you did that so well. Thank you, Sandra. I still don't know God's timing in all this. But maybe God took you so quickly in part because he knew if I couldn't directly say these words to you, I'd have to say them in front of everyone else. I love you and I'll miss you. And I pray your spirit of generosity blesses generation after generation for years to come. <laughs>